this is from Luke chapter 15, and in this chapter there are three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And I'd just like to read verses that at the end of each of those parables. So in Luke 15, verse 5, and this is speaking about the shepherd finding the sheep, it says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then there is the parable of the lost coin. And at the end of that parable, it says, And when she had found it, she called her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And then at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to rejoice and celebrate. And in the last verse of the chapter, the father said, It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and he is found. Father, we pray, bless these words and this time in the word together. Bless it to our hearts and lives. Give us ears to hear. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us that which is freely given to us, that you would teach us the meaning of grace and how it applies and affects and changes our lives and our walk with you. We pray bless this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's be seated together. Okay, let's focus together carefully. We really need the Holy Spirit to teach us always, uh, and this subject uh, relating to grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is not theory. This is not distant theology. This is about your life, my life. It's about the gospel of grace. In these three parables, some see uh, uh, a representation of the Trinity, the shepherd representing the Son, Jesus the Son, who was the good shepherd in John 10, 11. He was the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. He is the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. Secondly, the woman who takes the lamp and sweeps and searches, representing the Holy Spirit and his illumination and drawing people to Christ and salvation. And lastly, of course, the Father in the parable, representing our Father of mercy. And we look to the setting of this parable, and it's important to do that. Why is he telling this parable? Who is it to? What is the main message? And we see then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, to hear him. That's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a little bit like this morning. (laughs) Maybe not too many tax collectors here this morning, but a few sinners in the house, huh? Right? Gathered together to him, to hear him. How beautiful and simple that is. We don't read that they drew near to the Pharisees to hear them. 
but rather you would be likely to avoid the Pharisees and the religious crowd because you would be judged and condemned. And who wants that? Who needs that as a sinner? But oh, they drew near to Jesus. Why? Because that's where they were accepted and loved. That's where they would hear about grace and forgiveness as they would this day. People don't need religion or judgment or condemnation, but they need grace. When you know where you can find grace, you draw near to hear and to receive. What is the religious leader's uh, response to this? Here's the scene. Jesus is ministering and speaking. The sinners are gathered. And what did the Pharisees say in verse 2? They complained. That's quite different, isn't it? Hearing, receiving, or complaining. This is a contrast in these two verses. And what are they saying? This man receives sinners and eats with them. The self-righteous man really wrestles with grace. He thinks somehow he has merited his standing. He has earned the grace in his life. And those others, they don't deserve it. And he struggles that others would find grace. A little bit after this, we remember in Luke uh, 19, which we will study together, the story of Zacchaeus, remember? And when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. And they said, oh, he's gone to be the... He's gone to the house of a sinner. How could he do that? It says again that they complained, they grumbled, they murmured, oh, he's gone to be in the house of a sinner. And at the end of that story, in verse 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. In other words, this is why I came. Don't you understand it? I came for Zacchaeus. I came for the sinners. I came for the lost. I didn't come for the righteous man or the religious man or the self-righteous man who is deluded into thinking that he either doesn't need grace or that he's earned it. Jesus said, that's why I came. I came for the sinners. Verse Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that the Son of Man came into the world to save sinners. Wow, amazing. Now, as we've said, the context of a parable is important. Whenever you read a parable, you need to see how it's framed. Who is he speaking to and, and what, why is he saying what he's saying? Typically, Jesus is addressing a misconception in the heart of the hearers or some of the hearers. He's addressing some type of self-righteous principle or a religious spirit or a misconception. And here he's addressing their accusation which is that this man receives sinners. Now, I don't know if you catch the irony there, but their accusation was actually the gospel. They were accusing that he received sinners, and of course, that's in the essence of the gospel. As we just read, that's why the Son of Man came to save sinners. How far from grace would you be to, to make that an accusation as if that somehow is wrong. So verse 3, 
it says, so he spoke this parable to them. So this is the context. Their accusation, he receives sinners, and then Jesus sets out to tell three parables in very clear, powerful language to say, yes, that's right. I receive sinners. God receives sinners. But he goes way beyond that, of course. Not only that God receives sinners, but that he seeks sinners. And he goes after sinners and he, until he finds sinners. And when he finds them, what does he do? He rejoices. Not only that he receives, but what a picture. He goes after, he is seeking, he is searching until he finds, and when he finds, he rejoices over them. Let's go to the parable, the first one of the lost sheep. Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Oh, such wonderful words deserve our time and attention. But we need to move quickly this morning. But think of it. He, he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. But again, that's not all. Look. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Rejoicing. Verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, here it is again, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now there's an invitation here to the listeners, particularly the Pharisees and any listener, to rejoice that these sinners are gathered to rejoice that sinners are saved by grace. is an invitation extended to the Pharisees. Come, rejoice, for they have found grace. But of course, the Pharisees do not have the capacity or the heart to rejoice. We can imagine them in our mind's eye at the back of the crowd, frowning, indignant, with disdain upon what is happening. And Jesus swiftly moves to the next parable. Oh, sorry, first of all, he applies the parable. Look at this. Now he gives the reality of what the parable is speaking of. He says to you, that was a story to illustrate a point. Here's the point. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And he's speaking ironically here. There's actually a rebuke in those words to the Pharisees that they think they are the 99 just persons who do not need repentance. And that's the problem. The blindness of their own pride and their own hypocrisy, thinking that they were okay and they did not need repentance. Remember, they were not baptized according to John's repentance and they did not respond to that message, but they rejected it. And he says, heaven, listen to this, heaven rejoicing over the one. Can we fathom that? That's what it says. That there is joy in heaven, in the heart of God, and in heaven over one. But heaven is not rejoicing over the 99 self-righteous uh, 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 people. So then he goes to the next parable, verse 8, to reinforce the point. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp 
and sweep the house and search carefully, or wonderful words, until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. So again, there is the question extended. Like in the parable, won't you also rejoice with me that this undeserving sinner has found grace? But the self-righteous man struggles to rejoice when someone else finds grace. And now he moves to the last and final parable. Sorry, first of all, he applies it. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God again over one sinner who repents. Now, in this last parable, there are three main characters, the father and two sons, the oldest son and the youngest son. From verse 13, from verse 13, uh, we get the, the, the name prodigal. It's an old English word. We don't really use it now. Where the son wasted his father's livelihood or he wasted his portion. That's the word prodigal, wasted. It means to extravagantly spend, to outpour wastefully or extravagantly. The son unsparingly spent his inheritance. But let's remember, the parable is more about the one who is seeking and receiving and rejoicing than it is the one who is lost. What shocks us with the parable is not that the son sins, right? We understand that. But what shocks us with the parable is how the father receives him. It's the mercy of God. It's how the father abundantly and lavishly pours out mercy upon the son. Perhaps the better title might be the prodigal father who extravagantly, unsparingly pours out grace and mercy on his son. Either way, the focus really is the father. We notice the second son also. And he's in the parable for a purpose because later Jesus is going to use the indignant elder son again as a rebuke to the Pharisees that are listening that they could not come in and rejoice with the younger brother. They could not rejoice that the son had been found. And perhaps we find conviction this morning or with this parable in both sons. Perhaps there's a little bit of an elder brother in us naturally. No, perhaps, sorry. We all have an old sin nature and measures of pride if we are not humble and spirit-filled. We will very quickly be a judge over our brother, but through humility and grace and the spirit-filling, we can rejoice with one another over the grace that we have found. So let's look here, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, typically the oldest son would have got two-thirds. He would have got a double portion, and the younger son would have got the last third. But they would only get it, obviously, when the father dies. So for the son, the younger son to ask for his inheritance now, particularly in this culture where honor was so highly esteemed, particularly towards the father figure of the family and considering that inheritance, for him to make this request now would have perhaps made the listeners back then gasp when they heard that, that the younger son would ask for his inheritance before the time. 
There was no gratitude, no respect, no honor. It would have been shocking. It would have been dishonorable. He had his own plans and his desires. It did not involve his father or the house. He wanted to go and live his own life. Give me my portion now. Typically, an inheritance would come with some responsibility, some management over the farm or whatever it was. He didn't want that. The Greek word here is chosen very carefully. He just wanted his portion. Turn it into cash, and I'm gone. The next shock for the listeners is in this line. So he divided to them his livelihood. And again, they would have said, what? He gave him his request? He could have responded and shunned him and rejected him and disinherited him or shamed him. But it says the father actually gave his livelihood. Verse 13, and not many days after. All the words are carefully chosen in this parable, aren't they? He wasn't waiting around. He, already, he had a plan. Not many days after, perhaps his bags were, were, were packed and he was ready to go. The younger son gathered all together and he journeyed to a far country. This far country, as is indicated later, means that it was a Gentile region he went to. He went to a far country to get as far away as he could, not just to move down the road to be associated, but completely going as far as he could. Nothing to do with his father or his brother or the home. And it says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Again, this would have been shocking for the hearer. Not only did the son ask prematurely, not only was it given to him, but then he took it to a far country and he wasted it. How dishonorable for all of the labors and the, 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 the generations before them and the, what would have become his and he just wasted it. How dishonorable that would have, uh, would have been to every hearer. Verse 14, and when he had spent all there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. Um, God will begin to work in our hearts and lives to bring us home if we ever wander. Have you ever had that experience? That in the end it runs out and it's gone. There is pleasure in sin for a season and maybe a famine comes and how God sends that or if not uses that to work in my heart and life that I would begin to think about home. But the son is not quite there yet. He's not broken enough yet. So he still goes to the world to try and find the answer. He went and joined himself, it's a strong word, to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Again, this is another shock moment in the parable to the Jewish listener. Again, the, the son had gone to a far country, obviously a Gentile country. Now he's working for a Gentile, and the Gentile has sent this Jewish son to feed the pigs, which was horrific for the ears and heart of a Jew to imagine. In this parable, the Jew is thinking, oh my gosh, he's gone as low as he could go, as far as he could go. 
is where he has ended up. Verse 16. And he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. Look at these words. And no one gave him anything. Oh boy, that's not a good place. He is desperate. He is destitute. He is hungry. He's working in the fields with these other servants, feeding the pigs. And as he's working in the fields with these other servants and just at such a low point, it causes him to think about his father's house and his father's servants and hired servants and those fields that he had labored in for so long. Verse 17 puts it in those words, but when he came to himself... It's a clear moment of clarity. Have you ever come to yourself? Have you ever been in a far country? Or maybe for many months or years or maybe for a few days or you've ever been in that place and you come to yourself or maybe the Holy Spirit convicts you or you are reminded about something, about His grace and His love and there is something that draws the heart. Those moments when the Holy Spirit is so faithful and we come to ourself, a moment of clarity, and he asks this question, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? That's alluding to his father's generosity, his father being a kind, generous man. Even the hired servants had more than enough. And he says, and I perish with hunger. So he makes this decision. I will arise and go to my father. That's a good decision, isn't it? If you're ever in a far country, that's a good decision to to make and find out how you can do that, how you can come back to the father's house. Though you're a great way off in a far country, it's very close to come back to the father's house. It's just a moment, isn't it? So, he says, I will rise and go to my father and say to him. Now, notice this. He's rehearsing now his speech. Maybe he's, he he's starts to write it down. Okay, what am I going to say to my father? Gosh, when I see him, what am I going to say? Okay, father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. And he's pacing, he's rehearsing. I'm going to go to my father. This is what I'm going to say. And in my imagination, I imagine that dirt road, that journey home, and he's just rehearsing these words, thinking about all the shame, dragging his feet, his head hanging low, thinking, oh gosh, I will say to my father. Notice he says, I will say to my father, make me a hired servant. What's astounding about this is this is how many Christians think about their own Christian life, that they are hired servants. They feel disqualified sometimes. Maybe you know a Christian who has failed, and they they struggle, they feel disqualified, they feel so distant, they can't come to terms with the fact that they are unconditionally loved and that there is abundant mercy waiting for them, that they are secure in Christ and they struggle with that. And in their, in their heart and the way they live, they feel, oh, if I just be a hired servant, I'll make up for it. I'll pay it back. I'll show God that I really meant it. And I pull up my, you know, and I get to work. 
It's the best we can come up with, isn't it? Make me a hired servant. Oh, but God does so so much better than that. So verse 20 says, he arose and came to his father. He's rehearsing the words. And remember the listeners. As they're listening, this point in the parable, they're thinking, okay, that sounds about right. That's good, yeah. That's right? Yeah, okay. He'd go back and he should be a hired servant. That's just. And he should pay it off. Maybe it will take him many, many years. But hey, that's a good deal. That's better than feeding with the pigs in a far country. He should be thankful to be a hired servant in his, in his father's house. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Let's continue the parable. And then we have the word, but. And when you read the word but in a parable, it often is saying, but the opposite of what you are expecting, the opposite of what your natural mind would think, this is actually the point and what happens. So we read, and I think perhaps one of the, among the greatest verses in the Bible, When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Wow. When the sinner is a great way off, the father sees him. Perhaps it implies that the father would be glancing to the horizon. He would be waiting. He would be looking so that in the distance he would see his son and just the silhouette of his son walking without any words, without any confession, without any, anything said, was enough to cause the father to well up with compassion and start running. Again, another shock point in this parable for the, for the cultural context that a nobleman, the master of, would be, would be lured, you know, pulling up his garments and running... And how far did he run? Well, the son was a great way off. So the father ran a great way. Just to see his son and what is in the father's heart as he is running, as his son's getting closer. He's filled with compassion. He can't wait to embrace his son, to kiss his son. He's causing him to just run faster. We think of how the son might drag his feet and he's saying, oh, a hired servant, woe is me, oh. Contrasted to the father running full speed. There is something you don't understand about my grace because if you did, you would be running also. Because Hebrews 4.16 says we come boldly, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, which is what we go for, and find grace, as if grace is almost like a surprise. We go to obtain mercy, and not only do we not get what we deserve, we also get what we don't deserve. But mercy takes away what we deserve, and grace gives us way, way beyond that, gives us what we don't deserve. So the father, filled with compassion, he runs and read these words, and he fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And this is a repeated action. He is kissing and kissing. He's oh, this graphic picture. The Pharisees are listening. And the father's running and kissing. And they're thinking, this, this is not right. What is happening in this story? This is upside down. This confronts everything in my heart. This, this, this is not right. Oh, how differently they would tell the story. And again, before any words are spoken, he fell on his neck and kissed him. He doesn't ask for an explanation. He doesn't want the story. He doesn't bring the son into a moment of shame and condemnation. There's no time for that. It is instant compassion and love and forgiveness. Now, in the midst of this, the father embracing him and kissing him, the son begins to get his words out. He begins to unfold his speech. The son says, Father, I I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And really it's as if the father cuts him off there because he doesn't get the other part out. He doesn't get to say, and make me one of your hired servants. The father doesn't, it's as if he's not even listening. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to hear that and he cuts the son off. That's as far as the father lets him get. And then the next verse begins with the word, but. Again, it's another one of those. No, what do you think? But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Wow. Fully restored in a moment. And in our religious concepts and ideas, we think of that idea of penance that is found in so many religions and even in the hearts of some Christians, that I must go through a period of feeling guilty for what I've done. Does that do honor to the grace of God, that I would beat myself up, that I would punish myself, that I would be penitent for weeks and weeks, rather than just naming it and confessing it and bathing in his mercy and moving on as if it never happened. I think that brings more glory to God. I think that honors the sacrifice of Christ much more, that he paid for my sins and I don't have to. So the son is restored it's so profound. It's so, so powerful. Here in verse 20, 22, he's received not as a hired laborer, but fully restored. And not only that, but the father says, I'm going to prepare a feast. This is going to be a time of celebrating. So, you know, just think about it. Not only does the father receive the son, but the compassion, the grace, the kisses, the rejoicing. And he's going to now set the sun up to be central stage in a feast of celebration in the house with all the servants. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And here it is again. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, you miserable Pharisees. I added that bit. But Micah 7.18 says, Oh God, who is like unto you who pardons iniquity and delights in mercy? Have you ever parked there for a while? That God delights in mercy? He's not begrudgingly, okay, all right. No, he delights in it. It actually brings him pleasure and joy that he would forgive the sinner. 
that rocks with our natural thinking a little bit. He goes on to say, this is my son. This is my son who was dead and is alive again. I don't think much else is going to get the father's attention right now. That's it. No other details matter. No other history matters. No other words matter. This, my son, was dead. And now he is alive. He was lost and he is found. And they began to make merry or to celebrate, to rejoice. Just for a pause I think that this serves as the most potent moment that any Christian could ever experience. It is when we come face to face with the grace of God in the nakedness of our sin. It's when we come to a place where there is nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, no excuse, no defense. I am caught in the act. I am convicted, I have failed, I have sinned, and I come face to face with grace. I think that when that happens in a Christian's life, it changes everything. That's what happened. Over and over again in the Bible, Moses at the burning bush, Gideon in the winepress, the woman caught in adultery, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, Peter on the shore when he falls on his face before Jesus. The woman at the well goes on and on and on. These are potent moments in a person's life where they, they cannot, they are not afforded to be able to play any religious game. They are sinners before a God of grace. That's it. And when we realize in that moment how unconditionally loved we are, how unlimited his mercy and the expression of it to us is, when we understand that his grace is abundantly poured out to us, it changes everything to the point that I don't think I want to leave home again. Grace and the understanding of it in some measure, it's a lifelong Revelation, of course, but in some measure, the understanding of grace has captured my heart and affected me and changed me as a Christian so much that I would not think of myself coming to God and saying, will you make me a hired servant? I understand that that does not fit in the Christian life. But I am your son, and you are my father. Wow. Profound, isn't it? But often Christians withdraw and they disqualify themselves and they say, oh, woe is me. And they wander and they disappear. And years, oh, and woe is me. And I was speaking to someone recently and they have not, not here in a different area. And I mean that this time. <laughs> I know I always say, not here. But actually this was in a different place. Um, and, and this, this person had failed, and oh, does God love me? And, uh, you know, I can't believe that God will forgive me. 
And I said to that person, I said, you know what you need? You need to find a grace church that teaches the gospel, that teaches the Bible, and you need to sit under that pulpit like a waterfall and let it wash over you and hear about his grace and his mercy and his love towards you and hear it again, not for a day. It's not one telephone call or one email or one church service, but for many years, sit under that place and slowly more and more and more, the truth will set you free and the grace will set you free and you will come to terms with what it means to be graced out by God the Father. In Ephesians 1.6, oh, to the praise of the glory of His grace that has made us accepted in the Beloved. Oh, to the praise and the glory of His grace that He has made us accepted in the Beloved. This man receives sinners. Yeah, you bet he does. This is the gospel. We are received or accepted in the beloved Son to the glory of God. Amen. Now, as we close, we'll, we, the, the eldest son is reintroduced again. And this part of the parable, of course, is to serve as another rebuke to the Pharisees who cannot rejoice and cannot come to terms with the fact that these sinners would be accepted and, and, and find grace. So verse 25, now his oldest son was in the field. Can you see him there? Working hard, faithfully. Oh, many, many years he's worked out. Faithful eldest son. He works so hard when people are watching. And if they're not watching, he makes sure that you hear about how hard he worked. That's what the Pharisees were. It was all about the outward appearance. They were on this works program, but the eldest son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. What's happening? So, verse 26, he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him, and notice that word, that addresses the accusation. This man receives sinners and there it is. He received him safe and sound, and your father has killed the fatted calf. And this is the moment you would hope it would all break open and the Pharisees would come and say, yes, we get it. We're going to come in and enjoy the party because this is the extension, the invitation to the party is in this verse. Come on in, elder brother. Celebrate with me. My son has been found. Your brother has been found. He was lost. And he's found. He was dead. And he's alive. Come on. You hear the music? No, I don't hear it. Come on. You don't hear that? Come on. But how did he respond? But he was angry. See it? He was angry and he would not go in. And therefore the father came out and pleaded with him. Now, the fact that the father would run to the younger son and he would come out and plead with the older son are such expressions of grace, aren't they? Even here to the older son, he goes out, he pleads with him. The word is to, to invite, to implore, to even the idea to pray. He's like, like begging him, reasoning with him. Listen, please, don't you understand? This is your brother. 
Why aren't you in leading this whole thing? And then we get some further insight because the older brother answers and he says to the father, oh, lo, these many years I have been serving you, these many years, read my lips, many, many, many years. It's like being in prison and you do the... He said, come, come, look, look at my wall. Many, many years I have been serving you for many years. Me, me. I have never transgressed your commandment at, <laughs> at any time over these many years. And yet, you never gave me, you never gave me, you never gave me, who has served for many years, never transgressed, never gave me. You see, it's all it's so ugly. Never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends, both of them, The self-righteous man always feels that he didn't quite get enough recognition, enough reward, enough honor. And he's there and he's clapping. Oh, yeah. But inside, yeah. Yeah. We're honoring, yeah. And they're like, yeah. They've only just come. I've been here for many years. Right? We need to be so guarded against that. No, really, yes, Woo! we rejoice. We, we give grace to others. And how much more when we more and more realize how, how much we don't deserve that. And yet we found it, we were given it. Verse 30, but as soon as this son, I love that, as soon as, he didn't wait, Okay, Dad, why didn't you put him on penance or probation for a few years to show he really means it and make him work a bit and a bit of shame? No, as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, now I don't know how he knew that, but it's probably just an accusation because that's what he would have done if he had the chance. Maybe, right? Judging his brother. You killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. I feel that this is a drop the ball moment. Could have been for the elder brother. The father says to him, wait a minute. You don't mean to say all these many years you have been working to earn my favor, do you? You don't mean all these years you've been on a works program and you don't understand our relationship and our inheritance and you actually think that your position and your standing is based on what you've done out in the field. No, you don't think that, do you? I, I wonder if the eldest son was like, 
what? All I have is yours. Wow. You've been working for something that is already yours. And rather in, than enjoying it and enjoying the relationship with your gracious, loving Father, you've been on a works program. Wow, unbelievable. And we're finishing. This is the last verse. I have no choice. (laughs) Verse 32. He says it was right that we should make merry and be glad. Isn't that a lovely phrase? It was right. This is right that we should rejoice over the grace of God towards us and towards others. And then he says, for your brother... Notice the elder says, oh, your son came home. He doesn't say my brother. He said, your son. And now the father says, it's your brother who is dead and is now found. I wonder how this parable might end. It ends there in the book of Luke. But I wonder if we could, if it was the prodigal son, the sequel, (laughs) part two. I wonder what would have happened. Perhaps. Someone's traveling past the farm one day and they look down, they see a field of people working on a hot day, digging, working in the field. And they notice one, one worker down there whistling, so much joy, he's working in the field harder than all the others. And the guy wanders down the field. He says, gosh, I, gosh you must be, you, are you one of the hired servants? Like, are you forced to do this? Like earning your wage? Or are you a slave? Or... I'm a son. I'm the youngest son here. And honestly, I didn't realize it before, but now I realize this is the greatest privilege for me to work in my father's field because he has served me. He has loved me. He has given me so much. This is my joy to do this. In fact, perhaps he would even answer in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where the apostle Paul says, I labor more abundantly than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? Because grace would cause me to labor more abundantly than any hired servant. And then perhaps he would look over and he would see the other son. You know, he still hasn't got over it because the Pharisees really didn't. A few did, but generally they didn't. And for many years to come, he probably was out there resenting his brother accusing his father and maybe working hard, but no joy, no freedom. But may we rejoice this morning. May we find the joy that echoes through heaven when one sinner turns to God, when one person finds grace, when one son comes home. And if we, if we ever find our place struggling, may we remember that, the, the, the seeking shepherd, the searching woman, the running father, the compassion, the joy of being welcomed back and forgiven and restored in a moment. And may that always motivate us to, to serve out of love as a, as a do-loss servant, not by obligation, not as a slave, but as a, as a son. So, Father, we thank you this morning for this time together in your word. We pray you would lay it to our hearts, that it would echo through our minds and thoughts this week, 
we would consider those, those two sons and how each of them were, did not understand your grace. Oh, but we pray that you would teach us, show us more and more what it means that we would live in grace, that we would be under grace, that we would stand in grace and walk in grace, that we would be rightly related to you in grace. We pray. Perhaps there's one here this morning or listening online, you're not sure of your salvation. You're not sure if you are yet a son or if you are saved. A man is either lost or saved. And to be saved, oh, it is just by looking to the Savior. I look to Jesus in this moment and say, oh, Lord, save me. Please save me today. Not by works, but by your grace. Not by anything that I have done or could do, but what you've done for me on the cross. I look to Jesus this morning. Say, Jesus, save me. I believe in you. I put my faith and trust in you for salvation. And lead me in a relationship with you, we pray. And bless this to all of our hearts and lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.